thank you for bringing us together to, to get in your word and, and grow by your word. And Lord, we ask for your spirit because we know uh, without your spirit, we can't understand these things. Lord, but you've given us your spirit as our teacher and our tutor, and we pray that we would learn from you, uh, God, and you would reveal things to us about ourselves, about yourself, and uh, Lord, we would be different, we would be better because of it. So please speak to us through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, so just bringing you up to speed, we know way back... Uh, few chapters ago uh, that the people, they requested a king for themselves. They were no longer putting their trust in God. Then we see this king of the Ammonites or this leader of the Ammonites, uh, Nahash, after God had appointed Saul as their king. Uh, he comes in and he threatens the people that he's going to pluck out their eyes. He makes a covenant with them. The people were afraid, but we see later on God delivers the people by his power, the power of his spirit coming upon Saul. Saul was able to be victorious during that time period so that we see God's favor on Saul. We see God's grace on Saul. We see that God is using Saul. Then we look at 1 Samuel chapter 12. Samuel, in his old age, he addresses the people and communicates to them that they've been in sin and they've followed this pattern of behavior, this pattern of rebellion, uh, and God's followed a pattern, and it's been a pattern of deliverance. Remember, he told the people way back in, from Exodus until the current time period, you cry out to God when you need him, and then when he shows up and things are good, you forget about him, you rebel again, and there's this vicious cycle that the Israelites were walking through. And last week we talked about this vicious cycle, a pattern of man's rebellion and God's deliverance. Now, though God gets this truth across to the people, they recognize their sin. They realize it. They see it for the first time because God confirmed Samuel's words through this storm. The hope would be that the people would turn from their ways. They would turn back to the Lord. But unfortunately, uh, that's not the case. And in 1 Samuel chapter 13, we're going to see despite the fact that God had so much favor on Saul and he was trying to set him up for success as a king, as a righteous leader, Saul is going to make a bad decision. Instead of being obedient to Samuel, his spiritual leader, uh, which is ultimately being obedient to God, he rebels, he's disobedient, and it's going to cost him greatly. Ultimately, we see that Saul was being led by his own heart as opposed to being led by God's heart. Which brings me to the title of this teaching. It's a question. Whose heart is leading you? Whose heart is leading you? Sadly, but truly, we see Saul's heart was leading himself, and, and even the people's heart, his desire to please the people, uh, which we'll see as well in the text. If you would with me in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. It said, Saul reigned one year, and then he had reigned two years over Israel. Okay, so now he's reigned two years over Israel. He's starting to get the hang of this leadership thing. 
We would think, man, well, he should get better, right? He shouldn't get worse. But what we see with these first couple of years of leadership is that Saul was laying a poor foundation. Why? Because he lacked relationship with God. So the things that he was building, this kingdom that he was trying to build, wouldn't last, it wouldn't stand, because it was not built on a proper foundation. Point number one, the building is only as strong as the foundation. The building is only as strong as the foundation. And we'll see the fruit of this poor foundation later on in the text, and specifically as we get further along into 1 Samuel. This is true really for, for everything, for anything. It's true for marriage. It's true for any type of relationship, whether it be boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, father, uh, son, family dynamics, uh, friendships. The foundation that we lay will determine what comes of that certain thing, whether it be ministry, whether it be marriage, whatever it may be. And we see this foundation for Saul. It was laid in two years, the first year or two of these experience that we have and these things that we're trying to set up in our life, whether it be a relationship or ministry or whatever, those first years are so crucial because those first years determine what the future is going to become. Not that we can't uh, be redeemed and if we had a rough beginning that God can't change that and, and make it a success story, but we see the truth throughout Scripture that when we lay a poor foundation, we can expect a rocky building, building that doesn't stand in fact jesus says it like this in matthew chapter 7 in matthew chapter 7 verse 24 jesus says therefore whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them i will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. See, the foundation of the building is so crucial. Jesus communicates to us how to build our foundation with anything. It's having relationship with him, listening to him, and doing what he's asking us to do across the board. When we do that, when we are obedient to his word, whether it's in marriage or ministry or friendships or even our careers, when we lay that foundation of obedience to the word, we're going to build a house, build a building that will actually stand because the foundation is solid. See, what you build these things on will determine how long they will last and how fruitful they will be. If you build a foundation on, on rebellion or disobedience or dishonesty or sin, the building that is being produced from that foundation, it's not likely to stand. And we see Saul, because he's built a poor foundation, his kingdom is not going to stand. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 2, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Gibeah. 
And the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews near. So we see that we have a thousand men with Jonathan, less than we have with Saul. And Jonathan, he attacks this garrison of the Philistines. We begin to form the character of Jonathan. We see this boldness. We're going to see it again in the next chapter. He's a man of faith. He's a courageous warrior. He's a man that says, I'm not going to let these people dominate my people anymore. I'm going to stand up for righteousness. He was a man that boldly stood up for righteousness, we'll also see that he was a great military leader, not just here, uh, but elsewhere, specifically next chapter. So it says that they're in Gibeah. Okay, that's the same as Gibeah. Gibeah has been mentioned several times. It's a, just a different word used for it. It's the same place, though. And it's interesting, archaeologists have actually found the remnants of this fortress of the Philistines there in Gibeah. So this place actually existed. There was this fortress, and we see Jonathan was the one that was that destroyed it. In fact, we see later on, Saul is going to, to build his palace in this same spot, in this place where this fortress was. So it was destroyed. Uh, then King Saul is going to build his palace on this place where this garrison uh, was destroyed. But it also says, look at verse 3. <clears throat> so Jonathan attacked the garrison, but then look what Saul does. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews, <clears throat> let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it, said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines and the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. We see Saul blows the trumpet and everyone hears that Saul was the one that took out the garrison. It's as if Saul is taking credit for what his son did. Now, this reveals something to us about Saul's character that we'll continue to see. He's a people pleaser. He, he wants people to see him in a certain light. He didn't give credit to his son. He's the one that blew the trumpet, basically l- allowing it to get spread that he was the one that took out this garrison. We see that he's a man after the people's heart. Okay, look what happens. Uh, back to verse 4. See, now all of Israel heard. It said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. So here's the deal. Basically, Israel at this point is somewhat under the authority of the Philistines. And the Philistines are okay with Israel as long as they don't fight back. Okay, now that Israel's fighting back, they're an abomination to the Philistines and and they're going to come after them. They're going to attack him. See, the enemy will typically leave us alone. As long as we sit down, as long as we stand still, as long as we don't stand up for righteousness. But the minute you stand up for righteousness, boldly taking steps of faith, you can expect to get the enemy's attention and you can expect him to come after you. And that's exactly what's going to happen here in this text. So the people, in verse 4, it says, And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. This looks good, right? The people come together. They're united. And this is obviously something we see throughout the Bible, a very important biblical principle that there's strength in numbers, right? There's strength in the body of Christ. We weren't meant to fight this battle alone. We're only as strong as we are united. The more togetherness there is, the better chance we have to win the battle. So at first glance, it looks 
They're on the right track. They're coming together. It's not going to last. First Samuel chapter 13, verse 5. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. Now we've seen this happen before when the people of God gather together, the enemy gathers together. That's why there's so much spiritual warfare that goes on within the church. And so often people will even have spiritual warfare on their way to church. The enemy will do whatever he can to prevent us from coming together. He'll cause, cause division. Maybe it's a conflict with an individual. I don't want to see that person, whatever the case may be we see that the enemy once he sees the people of god gather together he gathers together to develop a strategic plan to prevent the gathering we see in this text will be the philistines will be somewhat successful with this now we see the amount of people it says thirty thousand chariots and six thousand horsemen now how many people did israel have See, 3,000, right? 2,000 with Saul, 1,000 with Jonathan. Uh, some manuscripts read that there was 3,000 chariots, okay? No matter what, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen or 3,000 chariots, they're outnumbered, okay? It doesn't matter the 30 or the 3. That's the point. There's way more people on the Philistine side than there are on the Israelite side. Look what happens, verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed. Then the people hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and in pits. First they come together and now they're fleeing. Despite the boldness of Jonathan, that boldness didn't spread. And they didn't allow it to be contagious. His faith didn't become their faith. Later on, we will see that that will be the case next chapter. But we see the people didn't feed off the boldness of Jonathan. Instead, they were afraid and their fear led them to run and hide. They're afraid because they're lacking faith. Okay, point number two. Fear is present when faith is absent. Fear is present when faith is absent. The people are afraid because they're lacking faith in God. They see the numbers, the chariots, the horsemen. They go, there's no way we're going to win, even though God has bailed them out time and time again. And In fact, their last battle with the Ammonites, they won, despite being uh, uh, the odds against them. Okay, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, if you want to write it down, 1 John 4, 8, it says, perfect love cast out fear. When we're walking in God's perfect love, we'll have the boldness to face our fears and overcome our enemies. We don't see that with the Israelites. But this is something that God wants us to see for ourselves. If God be for us, who can be against us, right? And, and the Israelites, they're, they're not getting this. They're not understanding this. Now, we all have fears. We all have different situations that we've faced where, where we've been afraid. For me, sometimes it's animals. Uh, an out mountain lion maybe you know i've had encounters with sharks that are pretty scary uh but one time uh my my niece savannah she was uh she had one of those toy cars um like those plastic ones that you sit in you know uh and uh and um she would run around with it around the pool like like that's safe right she would go around the pool time and time again and, and it was just something that we did uh we never said anything we let her do it foolish part on us now anyways uh one day luckily we were out there and she wasn't able to swim yet 
um, <laughs> she fell into the whole thing, fell into the pool. And she was upside down in the water. And my brother, it was like a superhero move. He reaches in, <laughs> grabs her leg, and pulls her up by one leg out of the water. And she's upside down. She was so scared. She was so terrified. And she had a fear of the water for a short period of time. But because my brother-in-law and my sister were so diligent to, to love on her and to give her confidence that, hey, this thing happened, but it doesn't mean the pool's a bad thing. You don't have to be afraid of it. Now, their love for their daughter allowed her to overcome her fear. Her pool to the, the pool to this day is her favorite thing in the world. She loves going into the pool. But the point is, when we receive the love of God, the encouragement from the Lord, we can overcome the fears that we used to have. Perfect love cast out fear. The problem with Israel is they're not abiding in God's perfect love. They're forgetting how he's delivered him them time and time again. So they're in a place of fear and ultimately they're being led by fear are you led by fear or are you led by faith in god are you led by faith in god the love of god or are you led by fear of uncontrollable circumstances things that you have no control over and you stay awake at night maybe you worry about these things constantly and you have these fears and they're not even true a lot of times. A lot of times they're, they're lies. But when we abide in the perfect love of God, that's when we're able to have the courage to overcome our fears. That's the disconnect with what Israel is walking through right now. They're afraid because they're lacking faith and they're not abiding in the love of God. Now, it's important to note this. We see the people fleeing, right? Earlier, they thought that if they had a king, then all their problems would be solved, right? They'd be able to be victorious. If they had a king like the other nations, then they'd have victory over their enemies. But now they have a king, and they're still having the same problems. They thought, I'll have the king, and then my problems will go away. But they have the king, and they are experiencing the same things that they were previously. And this is so often the case with us. The thing we think that's going to solve the problem doesn't solve the problem. And we think and think and ask and ask and we're like, this is the thing that's going to solve my problems. This is the thing that's going to make me happy. And then we get that thing and we realize what? That thing disappoints. It's not the thing that makes us happy. It's not the thing that solves our problems because only God is the problem solver. Only God is the one that can give us true happiness, true contentment. We see this character with Israel, and we've seen it in the last few chapters. They're putting their hope and trust in a man, and we can too. We can put our hope in people. We can put our hope in changes of experiences, right, or, or circumstances. If, if I just lived in this different place, if, if I just had different friends, if I just had a different church, whatever, hopefully don't say that, but, but, but we can come up with any reason to say, if these things in my life change, then all my problems would be solved. But when we put our hope in those specific things, it's always going to be a hope that disappoints. Why? Only a hope in God is a hope that does not disappoint he's the only one that can solve the problems again israel facing the same problems hasn't learned their lesson the thing that they thought was going to solve the problem actually didn't solve the problem now they're fleeing they're afraid just as they've been in past chapters first samuel chapter 13 verse 7 and some of the hebrews crossed over the jordan to the land of gad and gilead as for saul he was still in gilgal 
and all the people following him trembling. So we see the people are running. They crossed over the Jordan. They're literally running from the Philistines. They're running from their fears, literally. And it says, Saul was still in Gilgal and all the people following him trembling. We see the people following Saul are trembling. We see back in 1 Samuel chapter 11, when God empowered Saul to be victorious over the Ammonites, we see that Saul... Though God used it, he led in fear, right? He instilled fear in the people. Now we know that they had the fear of the Lord, but I mentioned then that you'll see this character quality continue to come up in Saul. He he leads people in fear because he has fear. So the people that follow him have fear. And it says the people are following him trembling. Godly leaders don't inspire fear. They inspire faith. They inspire faith. And we'll see that with Jonathan next chapter. And you look at any good godly leader throughout the Bible, whether it be David, he he had people following him left and right, would do anything for him, would risk their lives so he could have a cup of water, right? We see this faith that was inspired. Why? Because David was a man that was led by faith. We obviously see it with Jesus Christ, the perfect example of a man that was led by faith, giving us the perfect example of what our walk of faith should look like. And the men, most of the time, they they followed him in that walk of faith. Paul, the same way. We see these great godly leaders that lead in faith. They inspire faith. But some, some leaders, they want to inspire fear. They they want to have people uh, afraid of them so that they'll listen to what they say. Do you want someone to follow you because they're afraid of you? Or do you want someone to follow you because they have faith in you? See, God would have... That we would be people that inspire faith, not fear. I don't know if I've mentioned this before. Um, there was a, a, a news reporter uh, in Russia back when Stalin uh, was in power. And uh, basically the news reporter, I believe if I'm right, he was an American. I believe, don't quote me on that. Um, but I'm going off of memory here. But basically he asked Stalin a question like, hey... Um, uh, why do you think that it's okay to, to, to torture your people and do all these things and be so, so mean and inspire fear in them? And what Stalin did, true story, he took a chicken, right? And he plucked its feathers out one by one, literally torturing this chicken in front of the reporter. And this is what he said. The chicken is freaking out. He's squealing. He's crying everything. After he plucks its feathers out, he lets it go. The chicken runs away. Then he bends down. With food, to hand the chicken food, the chicken comes back and feeds them. He's like, you can do, what he said was, you can torture your people. You can do whatever you want to them. As long as you feed them, they'll follow you. But this is the mindset of a sick sociopath, right? But this is the mindset of so many that try to lead in fear. It doesn't matter what I do to the people. As long as I get them to do what I say. You can see this in parenting sometimes. This isn't the way to do it. Saul. So often inspiring the fear in these people, we see the people running for their lives being led by fear, not being led by faith. First Samuel chapter 13, verse 8. Then they waited seven da- then he waited seven days, speaking of Saul, according to the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to, to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. Now 
We don't know what the holdup was with Samuel. We know Samuel told him to wait seven days. The seventh day, it appears, didn't end. So he didn't wait the whole seven days because Samuel's going to come on that day. Uh, so we see that Saul is going to make uh, a decision, a, a, a poor decision. But we see in the text that it's very likely that God was testing Saul. He was testing Saul's patience in this time. He was testing him to see if he would be obedient. Would he wait for Samuel the full seven days? Would he wait for Samuel? Would he be obedient like Samuel asked? Or would he be disobedient? Now we know the people are fleeing, right? He's going to have a lot of excuses about this. The people are fleeing. There's fear inspired in the people. The Philistines are are coming or at least preparing for battle. So obviously Saul is likely very anxious, right? He's probably very worried by Everything that it says, we can assume that. But in the midst of his anxiety, will he wait on the Lord or take matters into his own hands? What do you do in the midst of your anxiety? Will you wait on the Lord to get that word from the Lord, that direction from God as to what to do next? Or will you jump the gun and do something regrettable, do something that you can't take back? We're going to see that Saul is going to make a decision that he won't be able to take back. And it's going to suffer, cost him greatly. It says, the people, look, in verse 8, it says the people were scattered from him. Scattered from who? Scattered from Saul. So they're not just running from the Philistines, they're scattering from Saul. The people are literally abandoning Saul. This displays in the people, again, a lack of trust, not just a lack of trust in Saul, but a lack of trust in God because God had appointed Saul as their leader. This is true for us as well. When the enemy comes and he attacks, so often people scatter, they flee. And this is such an effective tactic for the enemy. If he can get us to scatter, if he can get us to flee, then we no longer have the strength of unity and he can pick us off one by one, right? The enemy is likened to a lion and who do lions attack? They attack the weak, they attack the vulnerable, they attack the lonely, they attack the isolated. Right. So the enemy is trying to get the people to scatter so we can pick them off one by one, just as the enemy does with us. First Samuel, chapter 13, verse nine. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. So only the priest we know was supposed to do the sacrifices. They were the only ones that were supposed to perform the sacrifices. So not only is Saul leading in fear, he's leading in rebellion. He's basically telling the people, you don't have to follow God's word by performing this act. And any time that we choose, especially openly, to not follow the word of God, we're leading people in rebellion. It could be our children, it could be our wives, it could be our husbands, it could be our friends. But whenever we say, the word doesn't apply to me, I'm going to do contrary to that, we're telling them it's okay to walk in rebellion. It's okay to not follow the word of God. Saul, leading in rebellion, verse 10. Now it happened, as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. So as soon as he finished performing this sacrifice, we see that Samuel came. If you would have just waited a little longer, he came at the end of the day. If you would have just waited moments longer, but his impatience got the best of him. 
how many times do we get ourselves in trouble because of a lack of patience, because we jump the gun, because we do the thing that we think we want to do or we need to do, but again, we didn't wait for the direction of the Lord, and now we made, again, a regrettable decision that we can't take back. So, look what it says here in verse 10. I'll reread. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the bird offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. The Hebrew says that Saul not just wanted to greet him, wanted to bless him. That he was coming out to bless Samuel as if he has the role of priest now. Like he's the priest and he's going to bless Samuel. Like this was like a a crazy thing. Now Saul's probably thinking, well, God had the spirit of uh, his spirit come upon me and I was already performing as a prophet. Why can't I perform as a priest? We don't know what's going through his head other than what he communicates here in these next few verses. But that's what he's basically doing here. He's going out not just to greet Samuel, but to bless him as if he's taken over over this priestly duties this also reveals that there's a lack of conviction he has no sense of conviction he's not going out and saying oh man i messed up i should have waited we don't see confession of sin uh, on saul we don't see him communicate anything like that it's like he didn't think he did anything wrong so samuel's going to let him know verse 11 and samuel said what have you done Samuel obviously knew that he did something wrong. He's saying, you did something wrong. What have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. So he's making up a bunch of excuses. It continues in verse 12. Then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. So let's look at some of these excuses, some of Saul's reasoning. First, he said, when I saw the people were scattered from me. Okay, so I'm losing the support of the people. Okay, I'm losing the support of the people. So I need something. I need to do something to gain their support. See, this sacrifice wasn't about bringing God into the situation. It was about appearing godly to the people. He wasn't doing this to bring God into it. He was trying to win the people over. If I do this sacrifice, maybe the people will have faith in me. Once again, it's hypocrisy. It's a false form of spirituality it's doing something so others can see but it's not doing it because you're truly trying to please god this is exactly what saul's doing and he says back to verse 11 not only when i saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed more excuses it's because you didn't come The reason I'm in sin is because you didn't come in the days appointed. He's justifying his sin. And so often we'll do this, whatever the case may be, we'll do our best to blame it on someone else. This is why I'm in sin. We see that with the original sin, right? When God confronted Adam, what did he say? Adam said, "Uh, it was because of the woman that you gave me. So he's blaming it on Eve and he's blaming it on God. You gave me this woman and it's her fault. It's her fault that I fell into sin and it's so sickening uh, that we do this. We'll blame our sin on other people. But the reality of it is we have to own up to our sin. It's no one's fault but ourselves. It's not our husband's fault. It's not our wife's fault. It's not our kid's fault. It's not our friend's fault. It doesn't even matter if somebody sins against you. There's no good excuse for, for sinning. Now Saul, he has a lot of excuses for sinning. Samuel didn't come. It's Samuel's fault. And then he says, <clears throat> The end of verse 11. 
and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. So we see the fear and Saul, the Philistines are coming after us. They're gathering together to, to, to battle against us. We see the mention of the enemy there. And then he says, verse 12, Then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. He says, the enemy's coming after me, and I haven't, I, I didn't seek the Lord. Now, to make supplication, he doesn't have to provide a sacrifice. He could pray. In fact, he should have been praying before this. He's like, now the enemy is here, and now I'm going to pray. We see this character in the leader. We also see this character in the people, right, in the last chapter. They come to God when they need him. But when they don't need him, it says they forget God. Saul, he's thinking about supplication. He's thinking about God. But at this point, it's next to too late. See the character and the leader. We also see it in the people. He also says in verse 12, I've not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. He's blaming it on his emotions. I I was led by my emotions. I felt compelled to do this. Emotions can be so deceitful. It's not that emotions are are bad, bad in and of themselves, but they can deceive us, right? Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, The heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Our emotions can lie to us, literally. And when we're being led by emotions that are contrary to God's word, we're being led by lies. Saul says, I felt compelled to break the law of God. That's what he's saying. I felt compelled to not do what God's word says. Okay, I felt compelled to provide the sacrifice, even though it's reserved for a priest to provide a sacrifice. When we're led by our emotions and it's contrary to God's word, there could be serious repercussions and consequences. In Romans chapter 8, verse 6, it says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. To have a carnal mindset, to be led by your emotions and those emotions not lining up with with Scripture, those emotions contrary to Scripture, leads to death. It'll lead to to the death of something. For Saul, being led by his emotions is going to bring death to his kingdom. We're going to see that coming up here in a second. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord, your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom, kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Samuel calls him right out. You've been disobedient to God. You've done foolishly. And a big portion of that foolish decision was impatience. If he just would have waited, uh, Samuel could have provided the sacrifices and we'd be in a different situation. He'd still have his kingdom. Says, verse 14, 
Sorry, the end of verse 13. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Now that was the uh, mentality and the heart behind a, a, a kingdom. You would pass it on from son to son to son, right? And we see that throughout First um, and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. So it would be his sons that were supposed to take over the kingdom. They were supposed to take over the reins, literally, if you will. But now it's not going to go according to that plan. And according to tradition, there's going to be a break. We see, we know the story. God's going to take the kingdom from Saul and give it to David. Now, Samuel calls him out on his sin. Hey, this is the big point. Regardless of what you felt and what your excuses are, you disobeyed the word of God. And there's no good excuse for that. As we mentioned, verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. See, this is important. The issue wasn't just that Saul sinned. David sinned and God didn't take the kingdom from him. The issue was that Saul wasn't a man after God's heart. He didn't have a relationship with God. That's the issue at hand. Yes, he was disobedient to the word, but ultimately it was because he lacked relationship. David was disobedient. He came to repentance because he had relationship and God restored the kingdom to him. Point number three, be a man after God's own heart. Be a man or a woman after God's own heart. But before we can be, for men, before we can be a man after God's own heart, we have to be a man, right? Now, I know man, men, the definition of a man, we know that it's not just an age thing, right? I know many grown men that aren't men, right? And I know young men that, that act like men. Being a man is actually a character thing. Um, you may have heard it said before, uh, there's a saying, um, boys do what they want to do, men do what they have to do, right? Boys just are led by their emotions like Saul. Uh, they just do what they feel compelled to do. They're rebellious and they don't understand the, uh, the, the relationship with God and what he desires from us. Really being a man, it comes down to choices. And that's really what character is. It's making choices, making decisions to, to honor God. Most importantly, honor my family, honor the people around me. It's a man that makes choices to, to sacrifice for the people that he loves and even the people that he doesn't know that well, being sacrificial across the board. And we can get into this a lot more, but we see Saul is lacking these character qualities. He's lacking. The, he's not a man after God's own heart, and he ain't even acting like a man, period. Becoming a man after God's own heart. Essentially, your desires are God's desires. What you do, the choices that you make are to please God. They're not, just, they're not to please yourself. They're not to please other people. Everything is filtered through the desire to please God, doing everything as unto the Lord, even when it's hard, even when it costs you something significantly, just as Christ, the most perfect man that ever lived, even when he was in a moment that he didn't want to do something and dying on the cross, he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's what a man does. Not my will, but yours be done. Willing to sacrifice all for the sake of obedience to the Lord. Now, we'll get into some of this now. We'll continue uh, to get into this more as we're introduced to David in a few chapters. But you see a lot of differences between David and Saul. Saul wasn't out to please God. 
He, he was a man after his own heart, being led by his own heart, as well as a man that was being led by the people's heart. We see, obviously, that he lacked relationship. We see the decisions that David made for the most part, though he was flawed. He was trying to please God. He did things because of his relationship with God. He was compelled by the love of God. See, Saul thought he was the king where David always saw God as the king. David always knew that God was the king. Remember, even with Absalom, he was willing to relinquish his kingdom. Why? Because he knows though he's in that position, God's really in that position. God's ultimately the king. See, Saul thought God was a means to achieve his goals. And David knew all along that God was the goal. He was the goal. It was all about the Lord. And we see David, he purposed to find God in everything. Every little piece of his life. He purposed to, to think about God constantly, meditating on the Lord day and night, meditating on His Word day and night. He even found God in, in mundane tasks, such as shepherding. See, this is what a man after God's own heart does. He thinks about God constantly. He's always trying to please God. He's thinking spiritually, and he finds God in the mundane. Now, I don't know if you've ever been a shepherd before for any length of time, but it's definitely a mundane task. It's not always fighting bears and lions, right? <laughs> uh, most of it is, is feeding them. There's a lot of running that's involved because one will run away. That one of the 99 or whatever, it always goes and it's different uh, each and every time, but there's always at least one that constantly takes off and you're running after these things and trying to bring them back. And it's a lot of work and it's not always exciting. It's extremely mundane, but David, he found God in the mundane. He was always thinking about God even during these tasks that weren't very pleasurable because he knew what he was doing was ultimately for the Lord. A man after God's own heart has this, this mentality. I recognize that in God's sovereignty, he uses the task set before me to reveal himself to me. He knew that even shepherding sheep, God was teaching him stuff. And that's why he's able to write Psalm 23 and all these different things. Without those revelations of David, man, it's, it's such a powerful thing to understand us as the shepherd and, or sorry, us as the sheep and God as the shepherd. But he was able to understand these things because he was focusing on God when he was doing something mundane. See, when we focus on God in the midst of the mundane, it makes the mundane exciting. There's something, there's something fascinating. There's something revealing about even doing the things that you don't like to do. If we have the right mindset, God can teach us things through things through washing dishes, <laughs> through doing laundry, through doing the tasks that we might not enjoy. But this is what a man after God's own heart does. He has this mindset. He's thinking about God constantly. How can I glorify God in this? First Samuel chapter 13, verse 15. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. So Samuel left them. He abandoned them. He can no longer support Saul because Saul's in rebellion. There's nothing Samuel can do to help Saul. Why? Because Saul pretty much pushed God out of the picture. Now we know we can't completely push God out of the picture, but that's ultimately what he did with this act Samuel left him because there was nothing else he could do to him. He can't tell him what to do now. He's already in rebellion. And it says that there were 600 men. We started with 3,000. Now there's 600. All these people fled. 
See, when we rebel against God, we can expect man to abandon us. We can expect uh, to lose some support. And you see this so many times when people are in sin. It's like, I want to help you, uh, but I can't help you because you're not choosing to follow the direction of the only one that can actually help you. So there's often relationships that are even lost because of rebellion against God. Look what happens. First Samuel chapter 13. Verse 16, it says, Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with him remained in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the road to Ophra, to the land of Shual. Another company turned to the road to Beth Horon, and another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. So basically, the enemy is surrounding them. And that's often what happens when we rebel against God. When we rebel against God, we invite attack from the enemy. We open ourselves up to to be surrounded by the enemy. Now, spiritual warfare isn't always because of rebellion and disobedience, but a lot of times it is. It's because we're not choosing to do the things that the Lord's telling us to do. We're stepping outside of those barriers of protection that he's given us through his word. And he's saying, hey, I can't protect you if you're going to live over there. If you're walking over there, I can't protect you. You're outside of the barriers of my protection. So the enemies are coming out to get them. It says in verse 19, Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his matlock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for a sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, the mat, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to set the points of the goats. So it came about on the day of the battle that there was neither sword nor, nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. But they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to uh, the pass of Michmash. So we see here the Philistines had superior uh, military technology. They had the swords, they had the spears, and they had to meet the means to sharpen these things. It appears that the Israelites didn't have effective means to sharpen their tools, and they were lacking tools. As long as Israel uh, maintained, uh, they allowed uh, you know the Philistines to be somewhat of authority over them, uh, then they would work with them, and they would sharpen their tools and things like this. But now, because Jonathan took out the garrison, it's not happening obviously you're not going to sharpen your enemy's tools so that they can fight you but we see they didn't have swords there were no swords left they had plowshares they literally had farmers tools but the greatest tool that they could possibly have is what who it's god and because saul rebelled against god he basically abandoned the only tool that can bring him to victory point number four rebellion against god is abandoning our greatest weapon. Rebelling against God is abandoning our greatest weapon. Now, no God means no useful weapons to fight the enemy. If we don't have God, that's the means by which we're able to overcome the enemy. If we surrender that weapon, then we have no hope of overcoming the enemy. Though they didn't have swords, though they didn't have spears, it wasn't that they were lacking physical weapons, they were lacking spiritual weapons. And it says in 1 Corinthians chapter, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 
verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Our weapons are not carnal, nor are they physical. They're spiritual. They're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. That's the only way we're able to have victory in spiritual warfare or in uh, battles over sin or whatever the case may be. We must use the spiritual weapons. Our plowshares, our spears, our farmer's tools, even the swords, they're not going to do anything if we're not using the spiritual weapons that God's given us. Shows us other weapons, methods of warfare, in Ephesians chapter 6, and how we engage in this warfare. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13 says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And he describes the armor of God and the sword of the spirit being the word of God. He tells us what our tools are to fighting the enemy, but they only work if we use them. If we don't use them and we try another means, plowshares, farmers, tools, it ain't going to happen. We're not going to overcome our enemy. And we're going to see later on in the next chapter, these things don't overcome the enemy. Jonathan and his step of faith and God using that step of faith to overcome the Philistines not to ruin the story for you first Samuel chapter 13 so it says in verse 22 neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan but they were found with Saul and Jonathan his son So they had the right weapons, the only weapons to equip the family. Let me rephrase that. They had the only weapons, the only spears, the only swords, the only shields. The royal family did, but they didn't have the weapon that they actually needed, which was faith in the Lord because, again, Saul was disobedient to God. Outmanned, outgunned. What are they going to do? Samuel's gone, their spiritual leader. Their only hope in this moment is God, and we'll see God show up in the next chapter. But when you look at Saul's leadership throughout this chapter, he's already done some negative things. We've seen some negative character qualities in him already, but this is really where he starts going downhill, and it all stems from what reason? He was led by his own heart. He was led by his own emotions. He was led by his own fears. He was led by the people and trying to please the people and appear like something to them. A spiritual, courageous person. But it was all a false form of spirituality. It all came from his lack of relationship with the Lord. He wasn't being led by the Lord's heart. And if we want to experience victory over our enemy, over sin, over our flesh, over carnal desires, any type of spiritual victory, it's only going to happen if we become men and women after God's own heart. That's the way to victory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this chapter um, and what you tell us about Saul and God. Um, it's easy to relate and understand why he did the things that he did, um, being in a, in a, in a bind, uh, anxious, worried. Um, but we know that, that he allowed that fear to control him and, and to lead him. And ultimately, he, he made a, an emotional decision, compelled by how he felt. And it was a bad decision. Lord, as we discussed, he was led by his own heart. God, I pray that if there's areas in our life where we're being led by anything other than you, whether it be fear, 
whether it be people-pleasing, whether it be just our own desires, Lord, that, that you would reveal those things to us and you would teach us what it means to be uh, men and women after your own heart, that we would truly be led by you and recognizing that being led by you is the only way to experience victory in this life. In your name, amen.